0: On this episode, we welcome back Michael Howard, who has just released a manga version of The Salary Man, which is a memoir that highlights his life in Japan and also his experience working at Japanese companies. We caught Michael at a very interesting time in his life because he is taking a position in his company that will have him returning to his hometown of Chicago in the United States, but he will still be coming back to Japan through his work uh, every couple months. But He's been taking time recently to reflect on his life in Japan and Japanese culture and also think about the things that he will miss as he will no longer be a resident living here in the country. He shares some very personal details about his divorce and also the efforts that he has been making along with his in-laws to re-strengthen their relationship. And of course we get into some of the very funny details covered in the manga, like napping culture in Japan, the expectation that as a foreigner you must be an English expert, the different mindset between Japanese and American companies about when you should be releasing a product, and much much more. Uh, I do. I, I probably should explain once again that, yeah, Ben had something come up last minute, so uh, he is not uh, going to be with us on the show. Uh, very sad about that, but uh, he will definitely be back next time. And, uh, yeah, we were just talking a little bit before we started recording, and uh, it's been a couple months uh, since you were last on the show with us. And I uh, kind of wanted to check and see how everything is going with you down in Tokyo, first off and foremost, because it's been like a huge coronavirus situation continuing. But the situation up in Sapporo, I think, is different than maybe perhaps other places. So how, how have things been going for you?
1: Well, for me personally, uh, things are rolling on. Uh, since I talked with you, I published the manga version uh, spinoff from the, the book, the memoir that we talked about last time, the whole covid work from home situation freed me up do a lot of the creative work to make that happen covid in tokyo i, I i'm just marvel the way uh japanese in general but tokyo people given the population density are able to deal with it and, and just it's amazing to me the way japanese during emergencies or pandemics whether it's the 311 you know uh, earthquake and tsunami and radioactive situation or COVID—they're just they're able to like completely absorb it into their everyday life and not make make a huge deal out of it. I notice it. It's like it's just they're able to deal with it and, and really make it not a huge pandemic from a like a local perspective.
0: What about your job though? Have you been working from this working from home this whole time, or how have things been going there?
1: So to to be. Transparent. I work for Amazon Japan. Oh, and okay. Yeah, I'm happy to say that. And uh, since the last time we talked, I've accepted a job with Amazon USA for the uh, a, a job in their Kindle Direct Publishing team, which is the book publishing uh, for independent authors division, uh-huh. which is what I the platform I use to publish my memoir, The Salary Man. My personal life and my professional life converged since we last talked. (laughs) And uh, uh, that's a very happy situation. Um, But I'm still in Japan and I moved to the US, to Chicago, to work in that new job uh, September 24th. So I've been busy since we last talked in uh, July with... uh, Publishing the manga spin off from my book, The Salary My Man Manga, and uh, tying up loose ends after living in Japan for 13 years, uh, personally, professionally, and getting ready for the change.
0: That is really big news and uh, definitely a surprise to hear that. And, um, and congratulations, of course, too. Have you got everything uh, set up uh, for your move back once you get back there and everything? Or is that going to all take place uh, once you get back there?
1: As anybody could imagine during the COVID, there's so many things you're learning as you make a big move internationally. Uh, I still have, as I mentioned in the last podcast, I'm divorced to a Japanese with two kids here in Japan. And so a big part of my job is the the ability... Uh, to come back to Japan every couple months and work from here so I can see my kids and work remotely. And so during COVID, though, and for permanent residents in Japan, it's been very difficult to leave the country and expect to come back. You'll be blocked from from coming back, uh, has been the situation. Up until this month, finally, the Japanese government allowed permanent residents the same rights as uh, Japanese citizens to leave the country and come back in uh, to answer your question that 's been part of the learnings is like okay, how do I make a move back to the u s but still be able to come back here to Japan and expect to you know see during the Christmas holiday season New year season. Uh, to To see my family and my kids here um, and make that balance uh, and how do I ship my all my stuff to the u s and uh, expect to have you know winter clothes and and, and freezing chicago in late November and December and I learned just today all the boxes I shipped will not be shipped not arrive in Chicago till like early December. Um, because of COVID, it's going to take two and a half months <laughs> to get there. Oh, so all man. these things I'm, le- I'm learning, I'm like, yeah, my winter, all my winter clothes, my winter jacket, not going to arrive in Chicago till, uh, you know early December. <laughs> that's, that's a little curveball. So lots of things like that, just dealing with right now.
0: In your book, you were mentioning that you were a huge uh, Chicago Bulls fan growing up. I'm trying to remember though, is that home for you? Are you going back home?
1: Yeah. Chicago is my hometown. My parents still live there. Lots of my closest friends still there. So this was the dream scenario for me. I wasn't unhappy in Japan, but I, I, I have been looking up for opportunities to work in publishing, especially with, within my current company, Amazon. Because, I think because of a mix of COVID allowing more remote work now than normal. And my background publishing my books on the Amazon Kindle Direct publishing platform allowed me to move back to the hometown, my hometown, which is far from Seattle, obviously, <laughs> where Amazon's headquartered. And so this is a very lucky mix, I guess. And I can't, I don't want to say I'm lucky because of COVID, but um, that's certainly something to do with it.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing that everything is uh, kind of working out that way for you. But I mean, it's kind of seems to go that way. Like when you kind of sit back and finally decide what you want to do and what you focus on and then start to put in en- energy into that. And then, I mean, they always say that, like when people do what they really love, like everything will actually fall into place. But I mean, it's a hard thing to believe in and to actually like, you know, venture off to do. Um, but I mean, it sounds like you're kind of turning into another example of people when they do focus on exactly what they want to do, then the pieces do start to fall into place for them. So man, kind of a little bit jealous and, uh, but definitely very happy for you. Um, but how does it feel that you kind of are now starting to get ready, uh, to end your time in here in Japan? Because I remember just when I was, uh, moving away from Sapporo once, uh, down South, uh, to attend, uh, Uh, university as a research student, Um, man, it made me realize how much I really loved Sapporo and and I didn't want to leave too much. And I started getting homesick even before I actually left the city and stuff. Are you having those emotions or or how are things going for you?
1: Oh, totally. I'm having those big emotional nostalgic. I'm, I'm meeting all these old friends that I hadn't met in like six, eight, 10 years. And now I'm just going, God, why didn't I meet you guys more while we were had our time before COVID even, we could have just hung out more. And of course my, my kids, that's, that's a very, (laughs) that's an emotional thing too. Um, Like all these things are happening with my in-laws, my brother-in-law who I reached out to, I got divorced a year and a half ago. And I reached out to him uh, three weeks ago and we just set up a, a lunch with his kids and, and my kids during my visitation day and very open and happy. And we're talking about like his kids coming to Chicago for s- next summer to visit and like for English study purposes and st- all these things blossoming, blossoming like at the last minute. And you feel like, at, I think when you leave a city after you've been there and put your heart into it for 13 years, like I did, like Suddenly, you do those things at the last minute, and you're, you're wondering, why didn't I do that earlier? I could have done this the whole time. And yeah. I think that's part of life, I guess, when you put your heart into things and you're busy. And I'm feeling that, a little bit of bittersweet feeling. Like, I'm happy I made these contacts who are so great and have great um, dispositions to open minds to do that. But I'm also feeling a little regret, like like lost time.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I don't want to pry too much into the personal situation. And, and if you can't talk about it, it's fine. But I mean, Japan, when the uh, divorces are just with, uh, when it comes to children and within a divorce, they're definitely, I mean, they have this, uh, huge reputation for always favoring the, um, the Japanese parent, especially if the Japanese parent is the mother. And, uh, man, you hear a lot of nightmare stories, um, where the fathers, If they're living overseas, their children get kidnapped and and uh, taken back to Japan, and their fathers have no way of of having contact with their children. So hopefully, uh, that's not the type of situation you're in. But
1: I went through the Tokyo divorce courts and could have become pretty bitter about the results. You you did mention like it's very favored towards the the Japanese parent, especially if it's a mother, and it's, it's true. I experienced that. But on the other hand, I really. I really now the last month or two realized I worked hard on communicating with her, um my ex-wife's brother and her mother for years, we had a good relationship and still do. And that survived. I really realized that that survived hmm. that whole process. So I, I experienced the negative part of that, that, that favoritism towards the Japanese parent. But on the other hand, I'm happy to report that there's a universal um, uh, communication that happens that survives with anybody um, that's in your family. And I discovered that. And that's going to survive as we go into this international mode of me living far away, but coming back every couple, two or three months. So that I'm very thankful for. and that's been a huge like sort of warm blanket that's sort of helped me with this moving process.
0: How do you uh, f- feel about returning to the US? I mean, there's a lot going on back there obviously. When you're kind of there living in the US and when you first come to Japan and people talk about, you know, what scares them about being in the US and you're like there's nothing scary about living in the US like but now after like living in a country like Japan where, you know, it definitely is a much calmer and safer society in a lot of different respects and then uh, just looking at the situation in general in the U.S., um, man, it's kind of at a place where you know people are saying they've never seen in their whole lifetime and stuff. Um, do you have any trepidations or anything about moving back to the U.S.?
1: I have none of that. Um, I'm going back to uh, basically. I'm I'm for the next six months. I'm going to be living with my parents in the house I grew up in in suburban Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is a. If, if you can picture for those listeners who watched movies like John Hughes movies from the eighties and nineties, you know, like home alone, 16 candles, breakfast club, you know, or like risky business, those uh, leafy Chicago spread out peaceful suburbs. Um, that's where I'm moving back to. And uh, for until I get situated in Chicago. So I'll be going back with my head down on my work and, you know, getting back to take care of my parents for a little bit and get my life settled with very little responsibility on me, given the situation, like I can just sort of concentrate on my work and, and my writing, um, the manga, particularly. And so I'm very lucky to be isolated, I think, from a little bit of this chaos that's going on with the election and social um civil rights and and covid especially the dangers of it i'm living in a leafy suburb of chicago so
0: yeah let's talk about the m- manga a little bit because uh did have to have time to check out your uh, i guess uh, first part that you've released thus far is that the general plan that's going to be released a uh, little by little or or how exactly is it going to work
1: Yeah, it'll be released issue by issue. So each issue is about 25, 30 pages, roughly, uh, of digital manga. Uh, So you'll yeah, expect every month or two at most to see a new issue uh, that continues some stories. But basically, it's going to be like stories enclosed within themselves, sort of like the old Archie comics. That you or Garfield comics or something like you used to read, um, you don't have to like have read the first issue to understand the second issue. But that's the plan: is um, both in English and Japanese to publish uh, the Salaryman manga.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to ask about the uh, creative process and everything because, uh, you know, I read the book, obviously, and now I've had the chance to read the first issue that you've released of the manga. And, uh, I mean, it, some of the content does overlap, but it's uh, written very differently. Um, and it's definitely funny. You do have a partner who does all the uh, illustration, uh, but you're uh, writing the all the text and the dialogue and everything that's in the manga itself, right?
1: Yes. So. The manga creation process happened during COVID. I just sort of had time by not having to attend so many meetings in my office to sit down and use a whiteboard and think visually and actually be able to storyboard how the manga would would work. And I had always imagined my book eventually being spun off into a manga. So this wasn't a sudden plan to just suddenly create a manga based like adapted from the book. I this was the intention from the beginning, but I discovered I, I could work very well with my manga artist, who's a professional manga artist. Uh, we just have a natural rapport, she and I, I would give her direction on every storyboard panel within the manga. Like here's here's the facial expression. Here's the way this guy should be leaning or here's the way his hand is you know, directed or how every detail within a storyboard panel works. I had built up that reservoir of like, I wanted to do that for so long since I did that book that my, my memoir had 75 illustrations that I, so I was ready to sort of take the next step and really direct a manga storyboard. Uh, She taught me a lot of things though. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't know how to do. Um, so it was like a, a marriage of enthusiasm and like my interest and her direction as a manga artist. I'm, Here's how you actually storyboard, Mike. And uh, <laughs> we got it done. It was very messy and took a lot of iterations to get this first issue done. It's like making a pilot episode for a comedy series. You know, it's, it takes 10 times longer than the rest of the episodes that happen later. And that's what I think happened uh for this first issue
0: you know i enjoyed the book itself very much but uh, i think uh, actually you know i don't want to put the book down at all but i think the manga is done even better because uh it, you know it's actually written quite funny and that's why i was uh curious to know like um cuz you don't have as many obviously words to work with i guess when you're uh, writing a manga and uh but you know, this is, it has, you know, quick jokes in between each little line or, you know, from one uh, box to the next, uh, you know, it goes to the punchline and stuff. So it's written very well. I mean, did this take practice for you or is this something that you had been practicing or are you just happy that it actually ended up turning out that way or?
1: Oh, it took, I mean, I exhaustively self-edit uh, every line. So this took iteration after iteration. I, I, I'm sorry to say but like years of waste of watching like cheers episodes or seinfeld or <laughs> friends episodes or whatever <laughs> maybe it's all coming a good return on investment all that time uh i haven't i'm not a manga like i haven't been a manga hobbyist or reader of manga too much i i, I pick here and there i'll i'll have a few manga i like um but i haven't i'm not like an otaku or into that too much but the ones i like i like a lot and it's like any other like sitcoms i like a lot so i just dove into my manga the same way i would a, a seinfeld episode
0: <laughs> this episode is sponsored by the red house for Sutsu, which is a restaurant located in the heart of rusutsu ski resort they're open both in the winter and the summer and they offer a mix of japanese and asian food and western style dishes That includes Shabu Shabu with Wagyu beef and also Hokkaido Wagyu beef steak. Prices range from under 1,000 yen to about 5,000 yen. They also have high-end Japanese whiskey available. Bookings are not required but highly recommended in the winter period. Their website is theredhouse.jp. So if you're enjoying winter sports or summer activities at Rusutsu Resort or just going through the area, why not stop by the Red House for a delicious meal? They are open 12 to 3 for lunch and 5 to 9 p.m. for dinner. Man, we talked about a lot of your interesting experiences that you covered in your book, the paperback book, last time uh, you joined us. But in this first issue, uh, you covered even some things that we didn't have a chance to talk about last time. Um, and it was actually something that I did want to ask you about last time was the uh, the Tokyo hip flask uh, and this kind of pra- uh, habit that you got into. And the reason I bring this up is because I had a very, very similar kind of habit that I started um, at my company. You know, my office was about... Uh, I don't know. It's about a 30 minute, uh, subway ride from home, but it was about, uh, it was only like a 10 minute bike ride, but a 30 minute subway ride. So when the months got cold up here in Sapporo, I'd have to take the subway to work. And on the way back, uh, I get out of the subway station and kind of stop by a uh, convenience store. One of the stores in that area that sold a lot of good bottled, uh, beers actually, and just kind of pop one of those off. And, uh, kind of use that to unwind as I'm sitting there walking home and stuff. And, um, but I'm, I was, uh, when I read your book, and then also the, uh, the, uh, comic as well, I was like, Oh, maybe this is kind of a little bit of a common practice by foreigners in Japan, trying to, trying to get through other, you know, what just happened throughout that day or to make it through to the end of the week or something. Um, was a Tokyo flask, something that you practice quite often, or
1: this is not a proud
0: behavior. <laughs> but i have to
1: flaunt it as a as a uh, part of my behavior <laughs> it's uh yeah I, I have to admit it's I, I put it up there on the on the whiteboard as, as sort of a this is how i dealt with boredom and this is how i dealt with 2 hour commutes every day like there's just there's no getting around the fact but like the human the human uh, capacity to like absorb uh, boredom or misery or you know wrong choices you got to have a a way to counteract that and i was happy in a lot of other aspects but like this this was just my way of like i, I just i can't sit for 2 hours a day commuting home i'm just, i'm going to have fun <laughs> and uh, this is my way of having fun and japan allows that um oh okay this little 25% alcohol uh shochu uh, you know, mugi shochu bottle at the convenience store that goes right into a, a, a water bottle, and I, I just pour in a little chuhai grapefruit, uh, you know, cocktail to round out the rest of that bottle, and that's my, my hip flask. And I just sort of like uh, creatively – this is this is more speaking to me than other foreigners, but that was my way of rounding off the edges of my day. You know, wasn't causing trouble. Nobody saw me because I, I i I wanted to be polite. I poured it into a a makeshift water bottle, so nobody knew I was drinking a beer or alcohol and that was my way of being having my manner mode as I mentioned and you know that 's my philosophy manner mode in japan and that was my way of being mannered, but uh, still keeping myself you know happy and and, and sort of enjoying my life
0: yeah we didn't uh, actually get a chance to hear uh the explanation about manner mode last time uh could you explain a little bit more about that philosophy what exactly is uh, manner mode before i wrote the book
1: uh the manga artist she and i like seven years ago i found her online and i was looking for an illustrator for my stories about working in in japan and at that time i just thought small go piece by piece write a blog little articles, but I needed a... I just always imagined an illustrator for every one of my stories. That was just the way I wanted to do it from the very beginning. I don't know where that impulse came from, but I needed a Japanese manga illustrator was where I, I started. I had written articles a little bit about Japanese culture before that, and I always found I needed an illustrator to sort of emphasize my points. So... That's probably where the impulse came from, and so it was just from internet researching, I found this Japanese-speaking manga artist who ad- advertised herself as an English-speaking freelance manga artist, and I decided to call the blog Manner Mode because I, I needed a name for the, the process of sort of taking my American impulses out of my behavior during working hours, and emphasizing my ability to fit in and try to adhere to Japanese culture and business practices. And I just, it's, I got tired of calling it so many different names, like politeness, fitting in, you know, there's so many terms you could use for that assimilation. I just said, let's give it a name, give it a name. And that became the name of my blog, was manner Mode.
0: So I think it's probably something that a lot of foreigners go through uh, being in the country, but also I guess it's uh, something that's just kind of uh, the way people live here in general, the Japanese people as well. One other thing I wanted to kind of touch on that uh, was also uh, covered in this first issue was napping culture in Japan. I mean, what exactly is the napping culture like in Japan, if you could describe it for people who've never actually seen it for themselves?
1: It's one of those buffers, like the consumer culture, uh, like the Izakaya uh, tavern culture, and all the great service and and just the politeness of the service industry here. Napping is there to to help round the edges of your exhausting urban life, especially in Tokyo. Uh, I'm Tokyo centric, of course, but yeah, I, I think napping is like it's that it's there to like deal with sleep deprivation of going out drinking late with your bosses and teammates, and dealing with a lack of physical, biological lack of sleep. That's number one. Number two, though, I think it's there to help you deal with boredom. You have the environment that uh, helps you do that. It, it's It's a totally nonviolent, peaceful environment where you won't get robbed or or touched while you're napping in public uh, to do those things. So, I think napping has a place, just as a uh, natural part of the culture.
0: Did you ever, I mean, go into any type of the napping culture yourself, or not really?
1: No, I, I learned how to nap on trains. That that definitely is a skill I acquired after probably four or five years into living in Japan. I learned how to catch a quick cat nap. Uh, for you know, a twenty minute like ride between different lines of Tokyo. Uh, so I I learned that art uh, very hard harder earned um, skill though. It, <laughs> for Americans, we're very worried about being robbed or maimed or maced if we <laughs> nap on a uh, on a public train, and uh, I had no no disposition to do that. I I, just, I looked at it as a competitive thing. I was like, this is this is bullshit. Like these guys can nap they get an hour more of sleep than me a day. So they're they can do better than me in my job. In in the job. How do I catch up on that? It's like they're on steroids and I'm not. <laughs> I simply looked at it as this is bullshit. This is this is against uh, immigrants. My inability to nap is hurting my ability to actually work productively in a Japanese company. That's the way I looked at it. And so I just was like, I got to learn how to nap. And thankfully though, I loosened up and just let it come to me instead of putting all that pressure on myself to nap for competitive reasons. I, it's just sort of dawned on me one day, just let it, <laughs> the nap overtakes you. It, you don't need to work at it. You get so exhausted working in Japan and having, Kids in Japan—the combination—that it just—it comes and overtakes you, and that's what the manga tries to illustrate: is like, don't fight it, don't try to put American power nap culture into the the equation. Become a salary man and let it overtake you. (laughs) That was my. That was my uh, advice from one of my senpai mentors. Uh, Let let it come to you.
0: (laughs) Just don't worry. Well, I mean, it's funny you talk about how safe it was because I actually had a girl that I was dating for a while, and she would commute from outside of Sapporo into the city, and she said like almost, uh, I don't know if it was every morning, but it was like multiple times per week. uh, There was somebody like an older man and a bigger man who would get on the train at the same stop that she would. And uh, they would kind of always sit next to each other. And she said like she would always fall asleep and she knew she could like lean over to his side and like sleep on his shoulder. And uh, he was sleeping too. And they had no idea who each other were. But uh, yeah, she was like, he was like her train napping buddy. And they would just kind of take the train and sleep <laughs> on each other's shoulders for like 20 minutes or something, you know?
1: That, that, that definitely condenses my observations into a nice anecdote. Like I witnessed people leaning their heads on the shoulders of others napping on commuter trains and marveled at it as like an example of like, I don't know, Neverland? It's true. Like there's just this peaceful, um, non-aggressive, non-hostile, even male-female, female-male discord that happens. Not even just snapping, but like in everything, I do feel like male-female, male-female, like both ways. Just very. There's not as much like aggression that's implied or expected or paranoid about that happens. And napping is one of them on the trains. Just put your head on your neighbor and it's not an aggressive act. It's just like environment. It's just the environment. This is urban culture sort of beating down on you. (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, this guy's tired. This woman's tired. (laughs) And uh, it's sort of like a communal... uh, That I'm going to miss. You mentioned missing Japan little things. I'm going to miss that communal understanding, that peacefulness, that sort of wah harmony you know and and that'll that's you can't find that in us in, in too many places that's really special
0: one thing i also kind of wanted to touch on uh, that was mentioned in this uh, first issue of yours for the manga was this uh, expectation uh for you i don't know uh, how many companies companies it was at but uh you know you definitely did not sign up to be an english teacher but before you knew it you were kind of expected to be uh the english teacher within the company did that happen often or was it just at uh, one of the companies
1: every company it was <laughs> it naturally happened um i'd be hired for some position that was like oh he's director of overseas sales and then it's like mike song next every monday english lesson for the uh, managers of this team, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you have to, I'm like, okay. Uh, I'm like, why? And they're like, Oh, Monday morning, U S is Sunday. So you're free that day (laughs) because the time difference. And so they're filling in my time that they, they know categorically I'm going to be free because Mondays in Japan or Sunday in U S. Yeah. I was put into these positions to teach, uh, middle managers, you know, who already spoke some English, get them to a next level. The manga depicts one lady who, uh, she was a, a level higher than me and when I, my first company, and but she did not take a very serious attitude towards her lessons. She was uh, bored with the job. She'd been an engineer there for 15 years and bored with her life and. Her husband too, and took a very flirtatious attitude towards the lessons. So
0: yeah. that always helps the lessons out quite a bit.
1: I'm deal. I'm trying to like fend her off as a. I'm playing defense during some of the lessons. You know, And please concentrate. This is the grammar point I'm trying to teach, and you know, she's just not not aggressive, but the, you know, talking. And so I, I, I The manga was from an actual lesson. I was trying to teach her about business ethics. Words, phrases we use talk you know here's the phrases we use talking about business ethics, and she spoke in good English already, and I was like, you know, under the table is a a phrase we use for like un, unethical practices <laughs> in business. you know, I pay this guy under the table i I do that under the table. these are things that are no good, no, not good, so please use it in a sentence and she's like, mm under table, I, I'm like, under the table, you know, trying to play the good English teacher and correcting the grammar and under the, under the table, I touched your leg. (laughs) (laughs)
0: She's
1: just, she's playing. She's just playing around nonstop. And probably because I had gone out drinking with like her team and her, her, a couple weeks before that, that didn't help the uh, respect for me as a teacher She was just sort of like plain and and casual during the lesson.
0: I don't know if they paid you extra for doing the English lessons, but I didn't get paid anything extra for my English lessons either. And I didn't have, uh, any, uh, anybody flirting with me under the table either. So, uh, definitely was not as great of a situation.
1: I was, it was all, I, Hey, I was, I was all eyes were on me as the only foreigner in the whole company. So, uh, Any extracurricular activity, I I would have been, you know, they would have had a spotlight on me real quick. So I was just like cutting everything off, playing the straight arrow. This is a straight lesson. Here's the English you need to learn. And uh, I did not get paid for any of this. Uh, But yeah, like little English lessons, not just the formal lessons in a classroom, but I was constantly, you know, asked to uh, translate. They would put me in these meetings with with American suppliers, and they'd be avoiding confrontation about the point of the meeting is to lower the, you know, you're going to have to take a 20% price cut, telling the American company. And by the time they would come to that very decisive communication of lowering the, you have to, American company has to lower the price by 20%, suddenly the uh, Japanese guy would go, Mike Song, English. Tell them, <laughs> you know, tell them, tell them about 20% price cut. What? He's like, throw the hot potato to me. To, uh, the, the final hard delivery of like, you know, a very important negotiation in the, like 20 people in a meeting, high level VPs from Silicon Valley, Japan VPs there. Mike's some English. Suddenly. So I'm like this, uh, sitting on the bench for three quarters and like we're in crunch time, last two minutes of a tie game. <laughs> they throw me in the game to, uh, to translate the, the very tough news that they have to lower their price by
0: 20%. <laughs> <laughs> do you think they, cause I mean, man, a lot of the uh, uh, business negotiations are always about pricing too, but do you think, I mean, did they, know that that was the most difficult part of the discussion and that was uh, basically who was going to close on the uh, on the issue? Or did they just kind of, did they not really, I mean, were they shirking responsibility or were they kind of oblivious to the fact that that was the most important part of the discussion?
1: No, I think they were worried. Like they, they read about how hardcore Silicon Valley, U.S. venture style negotiation is. And they're just worried. They know. that I think the modern manager in Japan is aware, like, the perceived weaknesses of, like, uh, Japan, like, the U.S. will just run uh, run over to you if you're not careful. And so they're just, they want to have their best foot forward. And that's why they hired me, I, I think, in a sense, was, like, to have this uh, interface at their disposal, to conceptually like close deals for them after not being part of like the whole first three and a half quarters of the game, like they would just throw me into the game to close it, you know, as like some sort of closer, you know, and and I think that's the way they they looked at it was like it was simple communication. They didn't need me to like understand their business or like be part of their management. They simply needed, needed me to be a mouthpiece. That like sat on the front of their face, and converted their their superior quality control and history into English. Mm. That was that was the way they looked at it.
0: It's it's funny because uh, you know they say like Japan is one of the last countries that uh, you know doesn't do uh, business and negotiation and everything in Japanese uh, or in English. It's still based everything on Japanese and, you know, there's obviously a lot of top management and older people in Japan who, and also young people as well that don't have uh, high English skills. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of the companies, and that's what I've experienced at least two that I worked at. And it sounds like maybe a lot of your uh, job experience was like that as well. They kind of, a lot of the reason they bring in foreigners is just to kind of buffer that last little bit of uh, just like you said, putting like uh, something that the opposite side will recognize in front of them, because they think that'll help to smooth everything out. You know, if a foreigner is quite good or experienced at dealing with that situation, being the liaison between you know a Japanese company and their American business partners, and they can do a very good job at that. But if they have like you know a little experience with that, or they're not, they don't even know where the Japanese people might be coming from with it. Just like you said, like somebody can be shocked when all of a sudden they realize that they have a lot of responsibility after all, but uh, they weren't necessarily prepped for it or didn't necessarily know what was going on, you know, so.
1: Yeah, the same role, like the same company that I just depicted, um, it was the Silicon Valley big consumer electronics company and Japanese um, raw materials supplier that I was working for. And they didn't let me... Have the direct role of like communicating between the American company and them, the Japanese company. Hmm. They had me as the J to A, Japan to America interface. And they had another guy who was my same level as the J to J interface, as like the, he would take what I would get from the American company and translate it and do all the communicating internally. So it was like this hierarchy or this extra middleman. They, ha- they didn't trust me to just sort of take the message from the American company and give it to them directly. They wanted a Japanese to take what I said, the Americans said, and put it into a form that they could deal with. They wanted a Japanese to take what I said, that the Americans said, and make it, I don't know, fluffier, easier to understand, or they needed an extra buffer. They didn't want me directly as the uh, guy taking the American message, giving it to the company. That was too harsh for them. They wanted a Japanese buffer in between. Uh,
0: Man, that sounds frustrating. I've seen that happen sometimes, uh, not even when the person wasn't necessarily even designated, but like if a translator is not doing a good enough job, or one of the foreign spe- people who was speaking myself or somebody else didn't do enough good job, And they would, you know, they're speaking in Japanese, but they would still like uh, say, somebody translate what that person just said, you know, like translate that Japanese to even better Japanese. But that kind of uh, reminds me, I, I did want to ask you last time because we didn't have a chance to, um, but you know, in your book and in your comic, you're definitely uh, poking fun or or revealing the humor in a lot of these uh, struggles as a foreigner working in a Japanese company. But uh, were there any times when Japanese people uh, were also kind of confiding in you and, and they were saying how much they were actually frustrated with the situation or how things were done in business culture in Japan as well?
1: Oh, totally. Uh, uh, the character in my memoir, the uh, RoboCop, RoboCop hmm. Uh, character. <laughs> this is based on the RoboCop movie character. That that was a name not created by me, but by all the Japanese on um, the team that he managed. This this guy, uh, middle manager that was brought into the, into the company. You know, forty something year old guy uh, brought in. He was such a stickler for rules, but he had no qualifications for the industry we were in. So all the sales guys on the sales team I was on were really pissed off like at the randomness of this assignment. Like, this guy is responsible for us. This is a joke. And it's just like constant, like, that's all we talked about as a team. This guy from the memory industry is a scientist, semiconductor company. This guy doesn't know anything. And he's just a joker, you know, of a stickler on rules. Hmm. And he just stuck us, he just pinged us on rules. Like, oh, you have to show up at 8.31. You have to re- repeat three company rules before you start your day. And if you don't, I penalize you. And like, he was very, like, a, a very, like a bureaucrat. And so the Robocop name just stuck. Like somebody created the, he's Robocop <laughs> one day. And that, that was a typical example of confiding. Like these guys, they're just like, like so what do you think this guy what do you think about this guy and i'm like well you know he's he's just a bureaucrat and they're like he's robocop <laughs> you know and that's that's the that's the way uh, confiding sort of happened with me in the beginning was the sort of roundtable lunches where people would talk about our common manager but i think later as i got a little older and moved a couple companies uh I started managing a Japanese engineering team and a joint venture project with an American semiconductor company. The complaints became about the American side. Oh, really? Yeah. And my job was the sort of, I I obviously knew there was a cultural dynamic there. Like they knew I could be sympathetic to the American side. (laughs) And so uh, there was a little bit of a, Uh, doubt about my sympathies. And I had to play that role pretty down the middle. Like who's, who's, who's in the right and who's in the wrong here. And I found like the confiding got down to pretty um, philosophical differences sometimes. Like there's an undeniable difference between the way American manufacturing works and Japanese manufacturing works. Mm-hmm. So, Japanese manufacturing is very, yeah, you know, right. Uh, the history is well deserved. Like, the quality is amazing in the history, and consumer electronics products prove that, like, the quality of the brands, uh, especially, you know, in the 20th century, latter half. And uh, they have a high pride in their quality. I think uh, recent history since the 21st century started has proven like Americans are starting to poke holes in some of the uh, ways that Japanese consumer electronics companies operate and their ability to move fast and like adopt uh fast moving changes. And so especially software based. And so I found myself the victim of like uh being in the middle of confiding Japanese teams would be going, Mike's on the American team just wants to do running change, running change. And that became a big theme. It's like Americans running changes, running change. You launch a product that's not good and you improve it after, after that. <laughs> and yeah. to a Japanese, that's just absolutely, uh, you know, death that that's, just completely embarrassing that's the end of
0: the reputation
1: basically yeah but that's that's the that's the hallmark of software-based the the whole internet revolution since you know it's happened is that you can do running changes you can change your product much faster than you could back in the you know 70s and 80s because everything is software-based and uh, technology allows you to update things very quickly and prove them. So you can launch something that's not perfect and get it out faster, make money quicker, which to Americans is great, but to Jap- Japanese, is embarrassing to have something not perfect out in the market. And so the, to Americans, it's great because you're making money quicker <laughs> than you did uh, if you waited two years to make it perfect. And so I found myself in these confiding situations later in my career in Japan was like, why can't we make this wait one more year and make it perfect and then release it? And the American (laughs) side, well, then we'll lose $500,000. And then we we don't have a fucking product. And we close the fucking thing down. And I'm like, guys, uh, I'm not going to say the fucking part, but uh, (laughs) uh, uh, there's no business. Uh, They're gone uh, if you don't agree to running change. Uh, And then the Japanese are like, "Ah." More, oh, these guys terrible. More, oh, and like the just complete, complete polar opposite of the culture on these kinds of uh, things. So,
0: just to rehash. But uh, where can uh, people get the manga? Is it uh, the easiest place? I guess is through the uh, uh, through the Amazon website.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Probably the easiest place to go is my website, the salarymanbook.com And you'll see my memoir and the manga, both listed there, with links to the Amazon site where you
0: can buy it. And uh, we'll uh, definitely put a link to that as well uh, in the episode description. And uh, does your job keep you connected to Japan? or
1: My new job with Amazon will keep me connected to Japan but I'll also be very involved with uh, the direct publishing business of Amazon. So I'll increase my efforts to market my manga uh, more and more. And I think the collaboration with me and the manga artist, Reina, is going to increase even more. So I'll be back every couple months to Japan. And uh, this is just the beginning.
0: Yeah, well, that's awesome that uh, you'll have uh, more time and energy to be able to to dedicate to that. And definitely want to thank you for coming on again. And and, uh, hopefully we can keep in touch and hear how things are going in the future as well. And uh, me personally, I'm definitely looking to the next issue of The Salary Man coming out. So uh, keep up at it.
1: Thanks, Brooke. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you.
0: Thank you.